and welcome to the Good Sports Podcast, diving deep into the world of sport for development. My name's David Terrace. I'm joined by fellow Good Sports, Sarah Begg and Lee Booth. Hiya. Hello. So today is Mandela Day, which celebrates the birth of Nelson Mandela. It's particularly significant this year as it's 100 years since he was born. It obviously has a key link with sport for development. And I think anyone who's involved in the world for sport development will know this quote from the great man. Sport has the power to change the world. It has the power to inspire. It has the power to unite people in a way that little us does. It speaks to youth in a language they understand. Sport can create hope where once there was only despair. As it is Mandela Day, we're looking at the history of sport for development and how we are here today. Sarah, what have you got for us? So I've put together a little timeline about the history of sport for development. And in the spirit of the episode, I've kind of used Mandela's release from imprisonment in 1990 as a bit of a watershed moment. But I thought it's best to go way back before that and start in 1922 when the International Labour Organisation and the International Olympic Committee established institutional cooperation, and 1958, when the UN Declaration of the Rights for the Child is adopted, which recognised the right to play and recreation for children. So in most timelines, that kind of all there is until the late 70s. But I read a really excellent dissertation by Robert Mulligan, which we'll link to on the blog, which highlights how the UN post-war development agencies included sports in a lot of the work that they did. So for example, Lee, as listeners will know, we were recently in Jordan working with young Syrian and Palestinian refugees. But can you guess the earliest record of development organisations running sports tournaments in refugee camps was? I can, it'll certainly be a guess, but I can have a guess. So I'll stick with that part of the world and I will guess uh, 49, so after the war in 48. You're really close but it's actually 1947 and in Germany. So the refugee camp tournaments were set up with the aim of building health and morale amongst the camp, but also reducing delinquency, which is something that we would probably recognise now in terms of even the football um, guys from Newcastle we heard from last week. And sport was also being used in a lot of post-war orphanages across Europe, lots of documentation about the need for equipment and space to play, which I think ties nicely to the Declaration to the Rights of the Child in 1958. So then in the 1960s and 70s, from a sports development perspective, you see a lot of governments in Europe instigating sport for all policies, which results in increases in participation in these countries across the population. And it kind of lays a platform for the idea of a right to sport and led to the adoption in 1978 of the UNESCO International Charter of Physical Education and Sport, which recognises sport and physical education as a fundamental right for all. So not just children, everybody. Now, that charter was kind of written as part of a conference a couple of years before that. And there's some super interesting things that came out of the conference, including the fact that it picked up these three limitations or risks of using sport and development. So Dave, I know you're interested in some of these kind of pushes and pulls within sport for development. So if I give you one, I want to see if you can guess what the other two might be. Okay. 
So the first is a recognition of resource barriers simply in terms of facilities in what we would now call low and middle income countries. So sports stadia, equipment, things like that. Can you guess what the other two are? Um, is it something around sort of the effect on competition and how it might um, have an effect on kids who maybe aren't so good at sport and, and ostracise them a little bit? No, that wasn't picked up at this stage. OK. Another, both of them are other ones of your sort of particular bugbears, so I think you're, you've got a good chance of getting one. Oh, OK. So um, is it around the commercialisation of sport and the dangers of too much kind of advertising money flowing in and losing the kind of purpose of the sport? Exactly right. So cautioning against the commercialisation of sport in terms of its risk to mass participation, but also an emphasis on the fact that it's it's not a cure-all panacea. It can't work alone in development and has to run alongside other plans for economic, social and cultural development. Super interesting that these things were being picked up so early. It is, and I think it's fascinating that that's one of the things that's been picked up by a lot of the people we've interviewed on the pod, that sport can only go so far, and these things are always better when working in partnerships. Amazing, really, given that that's 40 years ago, and we're still trying to figure out how to do that to the best of our abilities. Then the 90s hit, and across the early 90s, there's this amazing period of political, economic social transformation. You see the fall of the Berlin Wall, the end of apartheid, these big social movements, right to protect in the wake of genocides in Rwanda and the former Yugoslavia, these big worldwide appeals combating famine and HIV AIDS and various campaigns to make poverty history, all contributing to this sort of spirit of uh, popular humanitarianism. And you see a big upswell in the number of smaller civil society organisations, including NGOs. And amongst those NGOs are these brand new sport for development organisations, which have this specifically sport orientated approach to development. In the, in the 90s as well, um, there was in 1994, there was the first meeting of the International Working Group for uh, Women in Sport, which I guess is another side of the of of the kind of development world around women getting more involved in sport and promoting women's sport. And I've had a kind of quick look at it and a couple of really key people at the start that kind of got this movement going. Obviously, just recently, they've had their latest meeting in Botswana with loads of really inspiring women there. So there's a lady called Pendukini Ivalua Ithana, who is from Namibia, a Namibian politician, who actually fought in the People's Liberation Army. So she was one of the first women fighters in their army, w- women's politician, and really drove sport for development. She was actually the first chair of the International Women's Group in 1994. And then there's Anita White as well, who there's actually a foundation now at Chichester University named after her, but she was heavily involved with sport. She was an international sportswoman, but she was part of that movement. So she was a co-chair in 1994 as well. So we see sport not just being used for tackling kind of issues, but also promoting, I guess, underrepresented groups in the 90s as well, which is which is really fascinating. I guess that's when we can start talking about the beginnings of these sort of really key organisations involved in sport for development as well. So Right to Play comes out of the Olympic Aid group in 1994, as you as you alluded to earlier. 
Yeah, so we've already mentioned uh, Johan Koss, and there's a, a nice little story about his first visit to Africa, where he said, I met a group of boys about 12 years old, and one of them was very popular. So he asked, why are you so popular? And the boy said, can't you see I have long sleeves? The boy then took off his shirt, rolled it up, and used the sleeves to tie a knot, turned the shirt into a ball that they used to play in the streets. So he saw firsthand the power of sport in even the most poorest communities and wanted to help people play sport. And he obviously he donated quite a lot of money to Olympic aid. So he donated all of his gold medal bonuses in the Winter Olympics and then founded Right to Play and has since developed that into an organisation which you know, operates all over the world, but from really, really humble beginnings. There are other key organisations really sort of at the end of the 90s, early noughties, that are critical, really, for the sport for development sector? I guess the most prominent being Loris. And we uh, had the speech from Nelson Mandela at the start of the episode, and he made that at the inaugural Loris event in 2000. And that was started by uh, Johan Rupert, who was a businessman. Uh, and then another quick story, if I may. So he was mates with a New York Yankees baseball star. And the baseball player, who was black, always signed the white kids shirts or balls first and Johan Rupert asked him why he showed that favoritism and he said if a white kid has my poster in his bedroom he can hardly discriminate against a black kid in his class so he really saw the power of the role model within sport as a way of breaking down barriers and obviously that's a key part of Mandela's quote as well but um, again founded in 2000 through uh, Johan Rupert but managed to get backing from people like Dama and they had their first award ceremony in 2000 and it's kind of grown from there really and having obviously Nelson Mandela speak like that with that incredible quote really kind of launched the movement and it's grown from strength to strength. And of course 2000 is a pretty pivotal year in the development world in general. We've done episodes in the past about the sustainable development goals but their precursor the Millennium Development Goals came out in 2000 and in 2003, the UN commissioned and approved a major milestone document about sport for development and peace towards achieving the Millennium Development Goals. I won't go into details what it says, but it is worth having a read through if you haven't before. But it's where we see the real clear expression of how sport can be used as a development tool. And I think that sort of essentially culminates in uh, uh, 2014 which is of course the first international day for sport for development and peace on the on the 6th of april you know I, I did a lot more research around that period from the millennium through to now and there's a bit of a gap really and a lot of it's filled with various conferences and forums as civil society academia and traditional players like the un and the ioc start to meet and develop our understanding of what sport and development is and how we can do it well and I think that's where we get this idea that the sector is quite young in that mm. this sort of real rigorous attention to it has only been in the last 15 years. And also because it's quite disparate, because there are lots of these smaller CSOs, it's hard to pinpoint these big figures that are making the change. Personally, I think that's an exciting thing. I think it means we're, it's easier for us to be more needs led and also to actually work with communities rather than imposing these programs on communities to quote develop them sarah thank you very much for kind of digging through that fascinating kind of brief plotted history lee 
you've also been looking at sport, but more in terms of structured sport. Did you want to kind of say what you've been up to? Yeah, so I guess I, mean, I, I, guess I ended up down a bit of a rabbit hole, but I think there's some quite interesting stuff in this reel. I was sort of trying to work out if the Industrial Revolution played any part in sport for development. I think we all know it was pivotal for sport. It had a huge impact on sport in that people all of a sudden had time to play sport. There was more money, people moving into cities, so travel became easier. So I wondered if anything back then really was sport for social good. And a lot of it really isn't sport for good. It, a lot of it seems to be making sure that people are fit to turn up for work on a Monday, really. So it's all to do with the Factory Act of 1850, which basically gives people the Saturdays off. And that's where league sports really started from. But, uh, but a lot of it was down to uh, preventing violence in sport, really. So it gave the rules. I've got a nice quote here. So this is from... A, a 1602 quote read Cornish hurling, which sounds like a, pr a pretty interesting sport. So the quote goes as follows. When the hurling is ended, you shall see them retiring home as from a pitched battle with bloody pates, bones broken and out of joint and such bruises to shorten their days. So it's obviously a pretty interesting sport to play. Pity we don't get to watch that, I think, really. <laughs> the bit where we can... Perhaps align it slightly is this Victorian push to civilise the sports. And there was an increased awareness of workers' health then as well. Public schools also start to play a big part in that they're forming the rules. And this was another thing that led back to the, so some, some rules of football that were set up in Cambridge. So before this, uh, tackling was called hacking, which obviously sounds interesting. Tri tripping was allowed and encouraged. And actually people could handle the ball, but you couldn't run with the ball. But it's, it's this one that I really like. So rule number three of the Cambridge rules of football is that kicks must be aimed only at the ball. <laughs> Rather than oh, the head, for absolutely. example. Interestingly enough, though, you know, I talked about sport for all in the 60s and 70s. And a lot of that was driven out of this industrialization of uh, a lot of European countries, because, of course, the Industrial Revolution happened a little earlier in Britain. So really, it's a similar trigger that's creating this sort of culture of playing sport and I think without that culture of sport being something that people do and that we see as you know the developed western inverted commas as a good thing you probably wouldn't have seen the development of sport for development down the line so while it doesn't seem connected it needed to happen for sport for development to be a thing yeah definitely I mean those three things had to happen people had to have time to play sport mm. people have to have money to play sport and people also then have to have rules and a sport to exist as a sport that we've recognised now, I think. So, yeah, def definitely played a part. Even if you don't use sport for development, it has positive outcomes around physical health. Obviously, sport clubs become part of the community. Most of my childhood was growing up in cricket and rugby clubs. And you just you have a network of people. So clearly structured sport in itself can be a good thing. Obviously, there are downsides, but it can be a good thing. So it seems natural to put on top some of the more kind of explicit social messages that link in with that. But at the time, I guess they were just trying to get those basics of actually providing purpose for people to play sport and leagues and, and rules and all that kind of thing. So I think it, it forms a foundation um, and allows for sport development, as you say, but clearly there are benefits from just playing sport. Okay, well, we've mentioned Laureus a fair bit in this episode, and clearly they are kind of intrinsic to the development of the sports development sector. So I've based my quiz on them. 
Uh, quiz time. It is quiz time. It's a really short quiz, this episode. Very simple format. I'm going to read the biography of five of Laureus's ambassadors who are famous sports people from around the world. And as soon as you know it, you can buzz in. Obviously, if the person doesn't get it buzzing in, then the other person can get the full biography. Okay. Okay, understood. So there are five people. And Lee, you are four one behind in the overall standing. So see if you can get some ground back on this quiz. I will certainly try. Okay, first one. He is a former South African cricketer who played for South Africa in all formats. Buzz. Sarah. A.B. de Villiers. Incorrect. I so nearly just buzzed in then and said A.B. de Villiers. (laughs) Delighted. He just seems like such a nice guy, doesn't he? He does indeed. In 2003, he was appointed captain of the national team, taking over from Sean Pollock. He held the position of test captain until his retirement in 2014. Graham Smith. Graham Smith is correct. Next one. She is a Spanish former world number one professional tennis player. She won four Grand Slam singles titles, six Grand Slam women's doubles titles and four Grand Slam mixed doubles titles. In 1994, she was crowned the ITF World Champion for the Year. Buzz. Go on, Lee. Uh, Arantxa Sanchez Vicario. He's only got it. Oh, that's a great shot. Very, very good. Well played. Okay, the next one. Might need a quick buzz here. He is a British former sprint and hurdling athlete who specialises in the 110 metres hurdles. During a period... Lee. Colin Jackson. Nailed it. Oh, oh fire. No, I'm well, struggling. Lee, you've secured the quiz, but let's carry on, Sarah, see if you can get a few here. How many more do we have? There's two more to come. Two more. So next one, she specialised in the 800 metres and 1500 metres events and won a gold medal for both distances at the 2004 Summer Olympics in Athens. Oh. Lee. Sally Gunnell. Incorrect. Okay, Sarah, you've got a chance to get some points back. She set British records in numerous events and still holds the record. I think I've got it. I think it's Kelly Holmes. Kelly Holmes is correct. Yes, good answer. And of course, she's continued her legacy with the Kelly Holmes Foundation. Final one. He's a retired English rugby union player, former captain of England and 2016 inductee in the World Rugby Hall of Fame. He played as flanker or number eight for London Wasps and never played for another club, having arrived at Sudbury as a teenager. Played in all three positions in the back row, he won 85 caps for England and was part of the team that won the 2003 World Cup. Buzz. Lee. As you can probably tell, very limited rugby union knowledge. I'm going to guess Lawrence Delalio. Limited, but correct. Oh, oh well done, I, I included him because Lawrence Delalio has a foundation that funds Sports for Development Project. So they are five of the many ambassadors for Laureus. I will put the link on our blog, but clearly they're doing great work. So that concludes the quiz. That makes it 4-2 in the series. Lee, congratulations on your win today. Thank you very much. We've also dug through our archives and as some of you will remember, we often ask people what sport and development means for them. So here's a little montage of those. Sport and development means addressing the fundamental need for 
the next generation, because I always look at it from a youth perspective, to have all the tools possible to be fulfilled. To And I guess it comes down to our mission at Up To Us, to achieve their potential. Well, firstly, very exciting. And, and I think as I touched on before, it's sport film is a tool that should be seen as an integral part of the wider development sector. And whether that is around football and sexual health or around basketball, unemployability or whatever it might be, I think sport really is a wonderful way to, to reach, I think it's the best way to reach young people. Sport actually is very important to, to support traumatized children and uh, to let them uh, go out or forget about uh, their trauma. This is first and foremost is, is about inspiring change. Making sport development sustainable as a model of doing sport rather than sport as for elite pathways and, and going to sports clubs and that. So sport and football in this case was for us a great opportunity to look at a, a field that is usually overlooked and, and, and that we feel is kind of uh, left behind and a little bit forgotten by, for example, feminist causes, you know. So we're delighted to be working with two great organisations within the sport and development sector, Sport and Dev and Connect Sport. Connect Sport is a not-for-profit media channel dedicated to increasing awareness and investment in the sport for development sector. It also hosts an online directory of sport for development organisations across the UK and Ireland and will soon be launching new sections on jobs, events and academic research focused on the sector. They are also working with the Sport Journalist Association and other trade bodies to build a diverse workforce of journalists which reflect and represent modern society. Sportanddev.org is an online platform dedicated to sport and development. It provides resources, tools and news about the sector, allowing users around the world to connect with the shared goal of promoting sport as a development tool. As always, please do get in touch uh, with questions, comments and thoughts. You can do that via Twitter at, at @goodsportscast, Or you can email us, info at goodsportscast.org.uk. Or follow the blog, goodsportscast.org.uk. And make sure you subscribe to the pod as well. You can do it on iTunes and we're now on Spotify. So from the Good Sports, it's goodbye. Bye. Bye.